The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The suns are the real deal. I don't think crap. I'm investigating the world of one percenter motorcycle clubs, the outlaws of the biker world, what law enforcement calls motorcycle gangs. They are notoriously territorial and are rumored to engage in criminal activity to fund their biker lifestyle. And I want to get inside. Why do you think they agreed to speak to us then? Because I asked them to. <laughs> what better way to understand the culture than to visit one of the biggest motorcycle rallies in the world, which takes place every summer in Sturgis, South Dakota. Most bikers at Sturgis aren't one percenters but some definitely are. So when I see the guard and the gate, I'll ask you guys to put the cameras down, which I think is here actually. So cameras down, we're here, we're here. Like the Sons of Silence, I landed an invitation into their campground, which is basically their spot for the week. It's located away from the main rally and it's like something out of Mad Max. Oh my God, this is fucking crazy. But our invite came with lots of restrictions. None of the members were allowed to speak to me on camera, except for two people, and only after they reviewed all of my questions beforehand. How often is it that you have cameras filming? Never. Never at all. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series, Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market, and meet the people who make their living inside it. But this is a little different. From National Geographic and Muck Media, this is the Trafficked Podcast. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market, how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. In my career as a journalist, there have been very few organizations as challenging to investigate as outlaw motorcycle clubs. These clubs are a contradiction on two wheels, proudly and loudly public on American roads, and yet notoriously secretive about what membership truly entails. So this week on the podcast, I'm trying something a little different. I want to understand what life is actually like inside a one percenter motorcycle club. So I'm talking to a man who's lived as an outlaw biker himself. That's after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You guys call them gangs, by the way, correct? Motorcycle gangs. That's how the ATF refers to them. Yes, they're, well, everybody refers to them as a gang. They're not a club. It's not like they have, you know, these meetings and it's a big social event, right? No, these are gangs. I, and I will tell you, not everybody in the gang is criminally active, but they serve a criminal intent. Frank D'Alessio is a former ATF undercover agent. He spent 25 years infiltrating outlaw motorcycle clubs, like the ones I spoke with for the TV episode. 
Frank told me he's posed as a member or prospective member of three clubs and supported investigations into a handful of others. Warlock's case, the outlaw cases we had running, case up in Detroit that I helped on with the Mongols case that was on the West Coast. First club I infiltrated was called the Brothers out of Columbus, Ohio. They're a smaller club, so they're not like the Hells Angels or the Outlaws, but they were in a bunch of drugs, guns, bombs. I mean, we ended up taking out most of the chapter in Akron and Columbus and a couple sister clubs they had, but it was a learning curve because I'd never been around anything like that. What did you learn from that first experience? <laughs> um, well, that I probably shouldn't do it again, but I ended up doing it two more times. <laughs> <laughs> With three long-term undercover assignments under his belt, Frank's made a career out of pretending to be someone he's not. And I want to know how he does it. So how much um, making up is there in the story that you present, or the person that you present as yourself? Or how much is it reality a story is? Well, we like to refer what's like the 90% rule. 90% of the stuff that you're laying down to these people is the truth. Now, you might change the faces and the names, but, you know, familiarity and being able to tell a story that sounds like it's real, right? Comfortable, confident equals credibility. If you don't have the first two, you don't have the last one. So you have to be able to tell stories that you've actually lived because that's how they'll come across. Now, obviously the other 10% is, is the stuff that we put into our backgrounds to make us a little bit more believable on the criminal side of the house. And when it comes to selling those lies, Frank says you need one thing above all else. Gift of gab. I mean, the one thing about crooks, if they like you, they kind of tend to give you the benefit of the doubt. After the brother's case, Frank says he's learned to play a convincing and likable outlaw. Within the biker world, certain one-percenter clubs have a special reputation for violence and secrecy. So Frank set his sights on one of these clubs next, the Vagos in Las Vegas. I had one partner who was a Las Vegas Metro, big old Irishman, was a, investigated, you know, mafia for years and all that out in Vegas. So he gave us a bunch of background information. He said, if you go to this guy's tattoo shop, Sharky, who was a member, he goes, that guy will recruit you into the club in no time at all. A guy who'd recruit Frank into the Vagos was a perfect tip. So Frank and an informant pay a visit to Sharky's tattoo shop. And sure enough, just one tattoo later, Sharky goes into the back room and comes out wearing a biker vest. He goes, you guys ever seen this before? And we're like, and we're kind of disrespecting him. No, what's that? He goes, the Vagos, you've never heard of the Vagos? He goes, this is our club. He goes, you guys ride? We, go, we rode in on bikes. Yeah, I go, we ride. He goes, well, look, if you guys are interested, he goes, I'm inviting you to show up at church. Church is basically a meeting for motorcycle clubs, a place where the members talk about club business. So Frank showed up to this meeting, and sure enough, the Vagos let him hang around. And with that, he and a few other agents began their operation and the long, drawn-out process of becoming club members themselves. So you go through a period with a club or gang, whatever you want to call it, where you go in and first you have a hang-around period where 
people, you get to know the membership. And if they like you, um, sometimes they will invite you into the club. Then once invited in, you start prospecting, which is like trying out for the club. Prospects get asked to do all sorts of stuff. Silly stuff, like being at the beck and call of a member, carrying cigarettes, lighters, condoms, a sewing kit. But other tasks are far more serious. They'd say, okay, tonight we're gonna go hunting for some Mongols, so you would ride around this, the hills of Southern California looking to see if anybody had a patch on and then fight them, you know, or whatever. In the world of biker clubs, patches are both literal pieces of fabric and powerful status symbols. They proclaim club affiliation to rival bikers and separate a club's members from outsiders and prospects. As an undercover agent, Frank needed the status of a Vagos membership patch, which, in this case, is a picture of Loki, the Norse god of mischief riding a motorcycle. That was the only way he learned the club's secrets. A lot of times, because we're on the outside, we'll start making buys, you know, of dope or whatever's for sale. But in order to progress to the next level, you gotta get the patch so you can get on the inside. So it is actually incredibly hard to get patched, right? It's not easy at all. It takes years and you never know if at the end you will be patched or not. And there's a lot of things they do along the way to test you, like mud checks, will you fight? Mud checks is a fight? It's, it's kind of a loyalty thing. In my reporting, I learned that when bikers fight, it can sometimes get incredibly violent. So when Frank is trying to earn a place in the Vagos, how far is he allowed to go in order to fit in? All of this kind of activity is discussed with the U.S. Attorney's Office and the local prosecutors because there's going to be violence involved. There always is. I mean, you're going to fight. You know, you're going to be buying contraband. You're going to be, you know, you'll be carrying weapons. Up to a point, now there's a limit to what you can do, right? You can't use drugs. You know, you obviously can't kill people. They don't want you being the aggressor. But if you have to defend yourself, you got to do what you got to do, right? He tells me about one of these mud checks, where the Vagos he's been hanging around with set a trap for their territorial rivals, the Hells Angels. So they're going to lure the Hells Angels into this bar that's their bar, right? And with the whole premise of once they get him in there and talk to him, they're going to flush him out the back. So we're having this conversation, and the members are telling myself and my informant, they're like, okay. Here's a bat for you, and here's a hammer for the informant. They go, when we flush them out the back door, you guys just beat the hell out of them. So Frank picked up the bat and went outside. But they ended up squashing it, and nobody came out the back, thank the Lord. The back alley fight never happened. But you're sitting there the whole time, I got this bat, and I'm looking at my informant with this hammer, I'm going, what is wrong with us? What possesses these people, you know? It's, I mean, we're in role and we're doing what we gotta do, but it's like, what is, this is kind of mindless. And you're fighting over nothing. But that's part of the game, you know? This is how Frank talks about his undercover assignments. Like a long-term strategy, a game. I mean, it's a serious game with consequences, but the game, and going in there with the attitude, we're going to win. We're going to win, and we're going to take these guys and gals, and we're going to put them in prison. We're going to try to make life a little better for somebody else. 
Except in this case, if you lose, you don't just lose a game. If you're outed, you could be actually killed. True, true. You tend not to think about that kind of stuff, though, because if you dwell on that, you'll never be successful. Frank and the other agents were successful in the Vagos case. Over a dozen people were arrested as a result of their operation on charges of kidnapping, robbery, drug possession, and weapons offenses. But when this high-stakes game was over, all Frank wanted was another round. And now it's like, now what am I going to do it myself? I've had every weekend planned. I was going out with the guys, riding motorcycles. Everybody's looking at us like we're to be feared, right? And now I'm going to go home to my normal life, which that's a big letdown because there's no more adrenaline rush. Now, now it's like, oh man, what am I going to do? So what did you do? How do you deal with that? I went right back into another one. If you're a competitive person, it's the only form of adrenaline or kind of rush where it's a challenge to win. That's all we had. More after the break. After the Vagos case, Frank moved back to Ohio. He spent about a year out of the fields, and then... I get a call from a lieutenant for the East Lake Police Department, and he said, hey, look, he goes, you know, uh, we have a couple informants, uh, you know, relating to the Aryan Brotherhood in the Hells Angels. Would you be interested in coming up and talking to them? Frank's team looked at the list of potential informants and settled on a guy who was a member of the Ohio Aryan Brotherhood. It's a long-standing white supremacist prison gang. The informant told Frank about a major player in the gang named James Blomquist, who went by AJ, short for Aryan Jim. And AJ was apparently making machine guns. So of course that's in our wheelhouse. So we said, we'll talk to AJ, and we were gonna introduce an undercover agent for the purposes of negotiating a purchase of machine guns. So AJ was another captain in the Aryan Brotherhood. I mean, he was into everything. He was a pure criminal, like anything he can get his hands into, he would. If it was drugs, guns, stolen property, I mean, he didn't care about anything. And Frank says this made AJ perfect for an ATF investigation. He was going to oversee the investigation. So he tapped someone to go undercover and they prepared for a meeting. The agent, the informant, and AJ. The informant comes over and he goes, are you ready? Pointing to me, I go, ready for what? He goes, you're coming with me, aren't you? I go, no, I brought this guy up to go with you. He goes, that ain't gonna work. I described you. And I told AJ that you had been to county jail with my dad. Uh, I told him that you and my dad used to wrestle bears in bars. What else did you tell him? Well, I told him your name was Junkyard. So I was saddled with that for almost two years. So I have to call my boss and he goes, okay. He goes, well, go ahead and go. So Frank, now expected to go undercover in this operation as a biker named Junkyard, met AJ at a bar. And he says AJ lived up to his expectations. He was just a complete idiot, you know. Most people have at least one redeeming quality about themselves. And most of these guys and girls, you know, ladies in this, they did, but then you find a few people that have no redeeming qualities and they are just total evil. This was the guy, AJ. Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't. 
he was a pure evil kind of guy. So we went, we had a meeting with AJ for about three hours and AJ agreed to make us three machine guns. So we leave and okay, I'll figure I'm out. You know, I'm just gonna be a supervisor of this case. It wasn't that easy. After the initial gun purchase, AJ started calling Frank every morning at 7.30 a.m. Frank says the guy took a liking to Junkyard. Slowly but surely, we started making buys off of AJ, dope, the machine guns. Then we ordered up 10 more machine guns. He was making them in his shop. We took delivery on nine of them. And the 10th one he hands to me, and it was a pink one. And it had powder puff girls all over it. I just made this for you as a joke. If you want, he goes, I'll take it and powder coat it over. I go, no, 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 I'll take that because it's great jury appeal because he's just so flippant about what he's doing. Has no remorse, this dude. He tells me the law enforcement side of his brain was also excited about AJ. Bad dudes know other bad dudes. And the longer he stayed in the role, the more of them Frank could arrest. But he wasn't just playing the undercover game. He was mastering it. The game was no longer about trying to fit in with bikers. By this point, he was assumed to be one of them. One day we're over at his shop and he goes, hey, you know, we're thinking about starting up an AB motorcycle club. That's AB for Aryan Brotherhood. I go, really? I have five guys. Do you have five guys? And of course, right now, I'm like, motorcycles, motorcycle club, motorcycle gang, we can ride. Uh, yeah, I got five guys. So he goes, well, if we could start this gang, the motorcycle club, the Davies have been wanting to start. So we're having this conversation. So I go back to my boss again and I say, look, we've purchased about everything we could get off of AJ and we weren't gonna go any further. But now he says he's gonna bring other guys around. So Frank's boss tells him to go ahead. They arranged to meet AJ and his recruits. There's five of us and then AJ shows up, right? So that's their five. So we're sitting there and we're having some drinks and we're talking about how we're gonna form this club. Well, there's this one dude who he's not saying a whole lot, but we're watching him. So we're saying, oh, so. So after the meeting, we leave and we go meet with our colleagues, our peers. Other agents, and one agent recognizes the silent guy. That's David Snow. And David Snow served as president of the Aryan Brotherhood in Ohio. I go, oh. He goes, we want that guy. David had previously been convicted of a violent assault and an armed robbery. Frank says he talked to David's parole officer and heard details, which we couldn't confirm, that shocked him. Like about the assault case. So David, what he was doing is he had his girlfriend in the house and was playing Russian roulette with her. So he goes to prison. He goes before the parole board and they say, David, do you feel remorseful? Do you, you know? And he's basically, no. Whether these details were true or not, David had a long history of violence. And this made him a person of interest to Frank. You would see this guy and he would come in khakis and nice fresh shirts, polos, and it was like, <laughs> I go, to look at him, you would never guess he was the violent guy that he was. Frank says the competitive part of him was psyched. This was the kind of challenge he'd been waiting for since the Vagos operation. Well, obviously, these guys are violent, so we wanted to arrest them, but because 
they wanted to expand this club. Any of these Aryan Brotherhood members that were getting out, they were all coming to us, you know, coming to the club. So we were one just big happy family bringing two different criminal organizations together as one. The goal was obviously to get them with firearms, buy drugs off of them, but... So the goal was to take these guys down? Oh, in short, yes. <laughs> the higher ups at the ATF were sold. So they signed off on it, blessed it. It was called Operation 8112. 81 was for Hell's Angel, eighth letter of the alphabet, right? H, A, and then 12, A, B. Frank says motorcycle clubs use a lot of symbology like this. If you ever see Hell's Angels support gear, you'll never see Hell's Angels on any of their support gear. You'll see it say, support the big red machine or support your local 81. And since his new club was sponsored by the Aryan Brotherhood, a white supremacy organization. Of course, the whole name surrounds um, Hitler when he went to jail or prison the first time and all the officers who went with him when they got out before he rose to his power. He gave all those German officers this medal was called the Order of Blood. Wow. So the club got that name, Order of Blood. How was it for you in this case, you were not just posing as a, a, a biker, um, but also as a white supremacist? How was that for you? It was different because most clubs have that, used to have that little bit of that, you know, flying the Confederate flag, the rebel flag and all that business. But did you have to talk, did you have to convince them that you were in fact a white supremacist at any point? Did they ask you for your opinions or anything? No. I mean, there, there, it wasn't like, do you believe in this or do you believe in that? It's just in general conversation, they would make cracks and jokes, racial ones, and you were expected to laugh. You know what I mean? I can honestly say we never initiated those conversations because you didn't want to. That's poor jury appeal, nor, nor are those our feelings. But these guys would start the comments, you know, flying, and you would sit there and chuckle and laugh as you should. Of course, we don't really realize what we look like because it's normal to us, but we look like crap. We got our, you know, the uniform jeans, black boots, your, your vests on and our T-shirts. And, you know, they have the thunderbolts on them or the swastikas. And we're just walking around like it's normal day. Every once in a while, Frank would catch a glimpse of himself through someone else's eyes. We were going into this Walmart one time because we had some guys coming in, so we had to get a bunch of supplies. So on the way in, there's these girls selling Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> so we're walking in, and the mothers are like grabbing their little girls and pulling them to the side, you know, like, ooh, you know. And most of us had little kids at the time, so we're like, geez, that's terrible. But you don't look at yourself, you know, how you don't see yourself through other people's eyes. It's like wearing any patch. I mean, this one obviously represented a lot more uh, racist views, than, but a lot of clubs have racist views within the clubs. We showed up at an event that was a Hells Angels event where we were selling all our stuff. Within the first half hour that we were there, we had the Grand Dragon, the Imperial Wizard, a couple Nighthawks, and just some regular clan members come up to us and say, we're so glad you guys are here. So when people think racism in the United States is dead or that stuff doesn't exist, that's because most people live in their own little bubble in their world and they don't see it, but it's out there. Yeah, absolutely. And when it really came down to how others in the biker world view them, Frank says, there were lots of criminals willing to deal with a Nazi organization. The color was green. That was a common goal. If it was green, we'd make money. So that racism stuff was kind of set to the side. 
So in the case of the Order of Blood, it wasn't just that you were infiltrating a club, you were actually starting a brand new club, right? It, it, seem, it seems in, in many ways that you're towing dangerously close to the line, mm-hmm. towing the line of what's allowed and not allowed as a law enforcement agency. Even in your mind as a law enforcement agent, did you ever think, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this because it's not just that we're infiltrating a club, we're starting one. And how, what's, what's my role here? And am I inciting something that's not there? Would have they have done what they were going to do with or without us? Yes. The answer is 100% yes. So we didn't start the club. They were starting the club and just looking for members. That's always an entrapment issue. Did you make them more criminal than they are? Or did you make them criminal? Or are they already predisposed to do this? Well, I'm sorry, the Aryan Brotherhood are predisposed to be criminal. And, Frank says, still violent. If you talk that they're women or, or some of the people that have been at the end of their boot, they're not so cool. It's all fun and games until somebody decides to say something that they don't like. Frank witnessed club members illegally buying and owning guns, getting into fights and selling drugs. And he documented it all. This is something Frank really wants me to understand. Everybody thinks that if something goes sideways like that, you're going to come out a roll and save them. You're not, especially when you're outnumbered and outgunned. You make a better witness. As an undercover agent, he's not there to prevent these crimes. He's there to witness them, no matter who or what's involved. We're making a run to an event, meaning we're gonna ride to an event, a bunch of us, right? I think we probably had like 10 or 12 guys in our pack at this time. Well, one of the new guys in the club, he went right in the ditch, about severed his leg. That's bad enough. You know, we know the police are coming and and an ambulance, so we're taking everything off his bike that's in a ditch. So we gotta clean any gang affiliation with this kid out, so we're taking everything off his bike. Well, here come three Hells Angels. So they stop and they know us. So imagine, there's like 12 of us in our Nazi gear, right, our cuts, and here's three Hells Angels standing there. And here rolls in one lone state highway patrol, female, black. And she just pops out of her car. Now everybody has guns on, everybody. And she pops out and she just walks right in the middle of this without even like, you know, she's going for the guy and she's like, what's going on here, what's going on here? Well, at this point, they say, ma'am, we're gonna take her. And I'm looking at them and go, dude, we gotta get her out of here because if they get a chance, they're gonna take her, I mean, kill her. So we kind of grab her by the arm and we walk her back to her squad car and it's like, hey, you know, we're talking about what's going on and the rest of the guys are looking at because now they can't make a move because we kind of shielded them from her. And then, then another trooper ended up showing up and then we ended up all getting on our bikes and scattering out and left just a couple guys there. I mean, it wasn't like, fighting or anything, but when you talk about Harry, because, I mean, they, they were ready to kill her. Everybody there would have been been a lifer uh, as far as AB if, if she if she would have attempted to arrest him. So they weren't going back to prison for that. Frank was living the life of violence and crime, crime that got more intense as the Order of Blood drew more members, especially from the Aryan Brotherhood. David Snow, that guy who led AB in Ohio, drew in his massive network. When AB members got out of prison, they followed David straight to the Order of Blood. The club was making hundreds of thousands of dollars trafficking drugs and guns and forging checks. Their criminal network was expanding. 
They were getting friendly with other biker clubs in the area. And Frank saw the potential to capture evidence of their black market dealings as well. There are certain places in these cases where you get, and it's like, if we could just crest this, we're going to be able to make big, big strides in the case. As far as Frank was concerned, the case was going well, really well. Then he gets a phone call, a member of the Hells Angels who he was friends with. And he says, I need to meet with you today. And this guy never came out really during the day, ever. And I go, that's odd. I said, all right, I'll, I'll come meet you. He goes, I just had my car swept for bugs so it's clean. I'm like, oh, well, this is even worse. Frank knows something is up, but he agrees to the meeting spot anyways, a McDonald's, and tells a couple of fellow undercovers to tail him. They follow, they park across the street, and I get out of my car, and I go meet him in the inside of the McDonald's. He goes, well, come on out to my car, which you don't know if he's going to take you somewhere, right? So we go out into the car. He goes, hey, I want to show you something. And he pulls out this envelope that's addressed to the Hells Angels chapter. And so I pull out the paper and I open it up and like my butt slams shut. Well, I open it up and I'm looking at this piece of paper and it's got a picture of Jeff Grabman and Darren Kozlowski from when they infiltrated the Warlocks. So fellow ATF agents. Yeah, and one of them is working this case with us, Jeff. And they have him labeled correctly and then they have another member mislabeled. And like I'm looking at this and I'm like, you couldn't have squeezed a pit up my butt. And he goes, do you know these guys? I go, never seen these guys before. I go, I see they got them labeled as our members. I go, but I don't know who these guys are. He goes, we've been having meetings about this and we don't think it's anything. You know, we don't think those are your guys either. You know, we're good, but the thing you need to know is, is we think that you might have some people that are trying to infiltrate your club. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's nice to know. I go, you guys got any ideas? Again, Frank bluffs his way through. He says that Jeff had lost weight and looked different enough that he wasn't recognized. So I leave that meeting and I'm like, oh, now it comes down to, do I got to report this? Do I not got to report this? I should report it. But if I report this, I know what's going to happen. If he reports the threat that the Hells Angels think they're onto some agents, Frank knows what his bosses will say. They'll try to shut down his whole undercover operation. We thought we had it under control, which we did. So I had to go and I had to tell my bosses. And his fears came true. Two days later, I get a call that the case is being shut down because I had a, a first line supervisor that was, he was very risk adverse, let's say. So the case got shut down and we had to find our way out. There was a lot of heartburn over that because you know, people put their heart and soul in there. They're at risk every day. And, you know, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of time away from family members, and it's a lot of sacrifice. There was a lot of hard feeling after that. Do you still consider it to have been a success, that operation? I do, for what we did. I mean, it could have been tenfold more if they had let us just go another six months. All we needed was six more months, but there was no stomach for it. We weren't allowed to go back to the case, so they let us have about two, three weeks to kind of start to phase it down. But then, you know, you don't have a lot of time. So I got everybody together. It was decided that, okay, the only way that we can get out and dissolve this that would make sense is if I died. Meaning Junkyard, Frank's undercover persona, 
was about to meet his untimely end. And Frank knew just how he'd do it. All right, I'll have, I'll have a brain aneurysm. That's quick. It was just the first thing that popped in my head. It was like brain aneurysm, quick, over. There was no coming back from that. Frank put the word out that he was going on a trip to Florida to visit his fictional ex-girlfriend. And then he bit the dust. Another undercover agent spread the word. Junkyard was dead. A lot of those guys wanted to fly to Florida to go to the funeral. <laughs> some of them cried, some of them were, I mean, they were devastated, upset. And in the meantime, while all this is going on, everything's being formulated with the case agents and the district attorney and getting all the warrants, search warrants, arrest warrants, and all that made up to take these guys down. So we bought about two weeks with that. They were ready to bring down a laundry list of charges, illegally possessing firearms, illegally purchasing firearms, possessing with intent to distribute and distributing cocaine, methamphetamine, and oxycodone. The day of the bust finally arrived. There's always that moment when the case is getting ready to go down because you do form bonds with these guys, you know? And you know that in that world, if something was to happen, they had your back. When the cases are going down, I mean, you have that Judas effect, right? So it's like the night before you're sitting there going, man, I should call and tell that guy so he can run. Because you live with these guys for years on end. You know, you, you spend more holidays and birthdays with them than you do your own family over that course of period of time. And it's a feeling of betrayal, even though you've done the right thing. And then, Frank says, came the hardest part, revealing who he was, who he really was, to his former brothers. I will tell you, having to face those guys and looking at them and knowing, hey, some of you guys are going away for a long time, and I know your family, and I know your kids, and that's where you tell them, look, dude, it's not personal. This, this is what I do for a living. It's hard sometimes. It is. Some of them will start crying. Some of them get really angry. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of emotion, right? We're human, the same as they're human. You're gonna have a reaction to it. And most guys, the ones you like, now the ones you didn't like, you could care less. They, they, that feeling's like, good, you're going to jail because you do harm to a lot of people. Like AJ, Ari and Jim. He was in an interrogation room and he wasn't cooperating at all. Frank says AJ didn't know just how much evidence they had against him or how they got it. So as the door opens and we start walking in one by one, his face, he's like, you, you just see his jaw drop and he's like looking at us in disbelief. You know, it's like a parade coming in and he's looking at us in shock. And then he goes, all of you? And we're like, yeah, all of us. And he's like, oh, gee, you know, he throws his head back in a chair and, he's, and it's just a very defeated attitude at that point because he knows there's not getting out of this, you know. He's got, he knows he's facing some serious charges. It's all over for the Order of Blood. Their club is gone, their fun is gone, their reputation and power they wielded disintegrated. And that's also sort of true for Frank. And the big takedown comes and you're watching these guys and you're watching that person that you've been two or three years 
die. I mean, it's a death because now that person's gone. That's who you are. You build that person, you become that person, and you're never going to be that person again. So it is emotional. You sit there and you go, man, this has been my life. This is who I've been. It, you know, it changes you. Every case changes you. I think it makes you harder. It makes you more pessimistic about things. And the guys that you find that you talk to are guys that have done what you've done because they're the only ones that understand. But even after, in the afterlife, I'm talking seven years later, I still call some of my best friends by their undercover names. You know, I mean, that's just, just the way it is. I got out in 2014. I was, I was out doing deals the day I retired. <laughs> I mean, I was supervising them. I enjoy the operational aspect of it and I miss it. I mean, we still do training for, for law enforcement. I miss, I miss the camaraderie because there's nothing in a post-active undercover world that gets your blood flowing like that, you know, being in that moment, you know, being a little bit nervous, a little bit scared, but having confidence in yourself that like, I can beat these guys. The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to our TV series, Trafficked, from National Geographic and Muck Media. The TV series airs every Wednesday on National Geographic and is available now on Hulu. This episode was produced by Francesca Fenzi and our lead producer, Margaret Catcher. Our associate producer is Abby Spears. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Scott Kirk. Production help from Todd Benson. Recording assistance provided by Amy Jeffries. Original music by Jeff Morrow. Paula Benson is line producer. Executive producers for Nat Geo are Chris Albert, Ben Anderson, and Sean Johnson. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Plunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Mariana Van Zeller. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Tell your friends to rate and review the show if you've enjoyed what you heard. Special thanks to Dan Osbolt and, of course, Frank D'Alessio.